Welcome to All Things Vegas, nourishing self-care for the helping professional. During our time together, we will explore a wide variety of topics relating to self-care, all especially geared to the helping professional. Our guests are all thought leaders and cutting-edge providers in their respective fields of endeavor. They will offer not only helpful insights, but practical skills that you can begin to use immediately. Dr. Melissa Neff is a clinical psychologist, educator, speaker, and trainer in Missoula, Montana. The main focus of Dr. Neff's practice is neurofeedback. She is a certified neurofeedback provider and the proud owner of WellUp, a business whose goal it is to help people stress less and live well. Her research background is in the area of post-traumatic growth, and she has a passion for creative writing. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for joining. Really happy to have you as a guest on our All Things Vegas podcast. Thanks for having me. So I want to tap right into this whole idea of post-traumatic growth. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that we probably, most of us intuitively understand the general concept, but I think it'd be a really good idea for our listeners if we, if you could take a deeper dive into that. Perfect. So post-traumatic growth is really starts when something very earth-shattering happens to us, a negative event, a traumatic event, something that really shakes our foundation and the way that we see the world. So we've all had those experiences that really lead us to think about things differently. And so what happens when you have that experience, they learn how to cope, they are able to kind of return back to life as they knew it. With post-traumatic growth, the changes from the stressor, the nature of how devastating the traumatic event are can really change the way you think about things. So it becomes this process that leads you to transform into something different than what you were when you started. And it's through that process that people find themselves becoming a new person, creating a new life narrative, creating different ways of feeling, creating different ways of coping, and just having new ways of seeing the world. The context that I can put this into as far as an actual kind of situation is having a really difficult diagnosis medically, for mm. example, and going through a long process and then coming out on the other end and recognizing that your priorities have shifted. Would that be? So say you get diagnosed with cancer, maybe it's a later stage, maybe it's completely unexpected, and you have to put everything in your life aside in order to figure out how to cope with this and who you're going to become if you're going to make it through this. And then there's a question of maybe you won't make it through this and learning how to be okay with what is. Absolutely. Big task, isn't it? It's huge. Which is why it's kind of transformational, isn't it? <laughs> exactly. But it's not always fun. And it's full of a lot of unpleasant experiences as you go. Can we put some definition around is important to recognize? And I think you started to touch on that, that it's not fun always. Mm -hmm. And it's not comfortable. And it's many times wildly out of context with what we're used to. Exactly. So it's really, I would say one of the core pieces of being able to get to post-traumatic growth is the ability and the willingness to engage with the struggle. And that is a lot of people can't do that. A lot of people, that's where avoidance behaviors come in and people really have trouble coping and don't deal with things. But it's about engaging with the struggle because 
It is. It's like a seismic event. And I think of maybe the best analogy, it's like an earthquake hits your world, right? It's of seismic proportions. Everything shakes up everything that you thought you knew. There's just a little pause and a little question as to if that's really what you thought it was. And there's a lot of distress that comes along with this. And then there's a lot of rumination, right? So our brains go crazy trying to solve this problem. Oh my gosh, for example, we have this medical diagnosis, we can't control what we thought we could control, now what? And our brains engage in this sort of runaway train of rumination until the process becomes a little more deliberate. And there's some steps that are sort of involved with that in order to sort of make rumination more deliberate and less of a runaway train. And that happens as people learn how to cope with their emotional distress and kind of calm down that fight or flight instinct and learn how to cope with the emotional dysregulation that comes with this seismic event. And a lot of that happens with not only processing the information, and you could process that internally, whether like through a journal or through prayer, but also there's a really important piece of social support that allows that process of rumination to become more deliberate. Just knowing you're not alone, knowing there is not letting those feelings fester and stay in your body and allowing for there to be sort of a release valve in the presence of somebody safe helps your brain to regulate all of those emotions in a way that's more manageable over time. It's a whole self experience. So we can't, and I think that many times that we tend to think that it's a mind-based. And it does. There's certainly a lot going on there. Mm -hmm. A lot of story-making, a lot of narrative going on. But I think that many times we lose the whole somatic or body-based part of that. Exactly. And that's the piece where learning how to get a hold of emotions is so important. And there are different ways that people can do that. And sometimes talking about them helps, but sometimes talking about them makes them worse. And yes, it's about getting into your body and learning how to regulate those emotions in a way that feels manageable over time. Or even just getting into your body and recognizing that you're not comfortable, huh? <laughs> yes, and learning how to tolerate the distress of that. And that's that piece of actively engaging with the struggle. So a lot of people who have post-traumatic growth, especially in the beginning, and still sometimes at the end, they have post-traumatic stress disorder. They have depression. They're struggling. So all of these things simultaneously occur together, and it, it's not just one thing. It never is, is it? No. no. <laughs> no never is. It's just one thing. That's the part that many times makes this a little bit tricky for people to navigate is that we're so conditioned to put this in a box and mm -hmm. this is what this is. And mm -hmm. we're also conditioned in our society to make the pain stop as quickly mm -hmm. as we can. I don't feel good. I'm sad. Okay. Take an antidepressant. I'm in pain. Okay. Here's a pain pill. Okay. It, it hurts. Let's just not talk about it. And a lot of folks in our society really struggle with tolerating struggle. Well, nobody wants to be uncomfortable, right? Exactly. <laughs> what I also want to talk about here, and I think this will lead into some ideas about how people can actually work with this, you know, this idea of post-traumatic growth themselves, is can you talk a bit more and flesh out a bit more the idea around beliefs and narrative, our stories, mm -hmm. and how that can kind of trap us and then simultaneously maybe f be freeing for us as mm, well. I love that. So we all have stories that we tell about our lives in order to 
become more comfortable, feel more comfortable, not deal with things, deal with things. And so what happens in this process of post-traumatic growth is that your story changes against your will. So we'll go back to the example of the medical diagnosis. Let's say you're diagnosed with cancer. You thought your story was that you were going to live till 80 and be a grandma and retire and travel the world. And maybe you're 45 years old with a stage three cancer diagnosis. And, and now you don't know what your life will look like in the future. And so that makes you have to reevaluate your story as much as you don't want to. And that goes back into that piece of learning how to tolerate that discomfort. Our schemas and the way and our belief systems start to change as we engage in and the model for post-traumatic growth really talks about that rumination is really important. And we often think of rumination as a bad thing. I'm overthinking, I'm obsessed with this. For example, let's say you get diagnosed with cancer and you're thinking, what are all the treatments I could do? I could do Western medicine. I could do this alternative medicine. I could do this dietary intervention. And you could drive yourself crazy trying to fix it. And that's what rumination is. Rumination actually is defined as something that our brains do probably based on evolution in order to solve a problem that feels really hard to solve. So we ruminate, we ruminate, we ruminate. What happens is the piece of post-traumatic growth where it comes in is you want to have some kind of a witness to that rumination because that creates some space between you getting really stuck in your story and you being able to step outside your story and maybe see that there's a different answer or a different narrative or a different perspective. And that's where you can do that through therapy with another person. You can do that through journaling where you're reflecting on your own experiences. You can do that through prayer where you have a higher power or a spiritual guide that helps you to have space from your own story. And then over time, the repetitive engagement in those behaviors really changes the rumination to be more pointed and Again, simultaneously, you're learning how to tolerate distress. So you almost develop this, well, I don't know what's going to happen perspective. And maybe that's okay because you have to learn how to live in the body of somebody who has stage three cancer. So over time, what develops are these sort of new ways of thinking about things, a new appreciation for life, personal strengths, improved relationships. You know, how do I want to be if I only have three years left to live? How do I want to live my life? Who do I want to live my life around? Maybe I need to learn how to have different kinds of relationships and new possibilities for life. People will go through a crisis like this and they'll very frequently have a career change or have a spiritual development that comes in. Maybe they were atheist before and now when they're brought to their knees by the reality of life that is out of their control, then they have to really maybe reconsider that there might be something bigger. I think the whole idea of being able to tolerate that, Mm -hmm. I mean, that just seems like it's kind of the linchpin, it feels like to Mm -hmm. me in some way. It seems like the difference between spinning it around, spinning it around, spinning it around, and actually discerning what you actually can do, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. which is, I think, always like, great, now I have something I can do. Right, the yeah. control. But I also think there's a paradox to that, which is like, you also have to recognize what you can't do and be okay with that and give that up to the spiritual power or give that up to your therapist to help you with or give that up to your own higher self to figure out and This really shatters the illusion of our control. So I think it's both. Always is, isn't it? Yeah. 
So one of the things that that I want us to start to take a look at, and you have alluded to this a couple of times uh, in our conversation so far, is this whole idea of self-reflection. And I know that you are a, a person who really supports the idea of writing and using writing and journaling and whatever its form as a way to, first of all, develop our self-awareness and then being able to parse out where we are and what we're experiencing and get some clarity around that. So can you say a bit about that specific use of writing around developing this process? Yeah, writing is just such a great way to create self-awareness. We spend a lot of time as humans just with thoughts rolling around our heads, and then we forget them. And sometimes when you capture them in a journal, you're able to go back and look and even maybe a day later, you could say, well, maybe I was overreacting about that. Or maybe I was just really angry. And today I have a different lens because I'm feeling different. So there's just allows for so much self-reflection when you are thinking about things differently and able to go back and edit your own story in a way, right? And see how it evolves over time. And if you're somebody who keeps journals and you ever go back and look at your journals from 20 years ago, there's it's interesting because maybe your stories about yourself are totally different, but maybe there are some threads that are still similar. And some of those are valuable and some of those stories aren't valuable. And it allows you to reflect upon your story and maybe what you want to keep and maybe what you want to challenge in in terms of your next steps. So in your experience with working with this process of record keeping, so to speak, in this way, what do you feel are the biggest obstacles that people face when they sit down? Let's say they've decided it's like, okay, I'm going to do a little journaling here. I'm going to start to work through this. What do you feel like sitting down and with a pen and a nice piece of paper. What keeps us from doing that? I think our self keeps us from doing that the most. We often come from our conscious brains and our ego. So maybe it's embarrassing to say these things that we want to keep in our heads. If we put them on the paper, maybe they feel more real. So it makes us have to be out of denial if we label it and name it. Also, there is shame around what we might be feeling. There is often a lack of discipline that can be tough. Well, it could be doing something else that's more productive. Maybe this is a waste of my time. So I think we often just tend to get in our own way. Then sometimes we can get really attached to the story we write down. And so there are writing practices, especially for chronic pain, that involve five minutes of set the timer, write anything that comes to your mind. And the goal is to just like let out any negative emotions, particularly that maybe you're holding on to, and then shred it. Do not look at it again. Do not recreate the story. Do not consider the story. And and those have value too. It depends on the context of what you're trying to do. Correct. It always feels to me like if I have a place to start and recording my process, recording my journey, so to speak, through my story and how it has unfolded over a period of time can be really useful. Oh, absolutely. No, I totally agree. And it could be useful at different points in your journey in different ways. So I want to like circle around to this idea of a lot of us are probably and most a lot of the people probably listening to this podcast are familiar with the idea of the hero's journey. And I mean, it's obviously a really familiar storyline. It's in almost every movie that we all like Mm -hmm. is this idea. We're really used to seeing it out there. But can you help us with some ways that we can start to make that about our journey. 
Of course. So the idea of the hero's journey is that an ordinary person, you know, you and I were just ordinary people in the world. An ordinary person sets out on some epic journey that they don't really want to set out on. That's that seismic event. It happens to them. And now they're thrown into this mythical, magical world where there are tests and trials and enemies and villains. And you have to literally slay the dragon sometimes. And through that process, you're going through a bunch of changes in the way you think, changes in the way you cope, you have helpers along the way, and then you go back to your ordinary world, and you're changed. And you didn't maybe set out to change. It's almost like you had to engage, similar with post-traumatic growth, you had to engage with that struggle in order to come back and become something different, and then try it out, and then see what you can give your village out out of that wisdom that you learned. Again, it's sharing back what you have, what you've gained. Exactly. And a little bit as a different person in a different way. And it becomes more about service than about your own struggle, which we know there's a lot of research that says the more you help people in service, the easier it is to sort of cope with and get out of your own struggle. How would you suggest that people get started if they kind of resonate with this idea of, huh, maybe I have had the arc of the hero's journey in my life. For sure. Some of us, maybe more than once, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. absolutely. I would say many of us more yeah. than one, maybe most of us, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say there's no right or wrong answer. There's no good or bad way to journal. You can pick up a piece of paper, you can pick up a napkin, you can get a notebook from Walgreens. And the idea is to just reflect on maybe one of your toughest life experiences, as long as you have enough distance from it to feel like you can cope with that, or if you have social support, go ahead and work on the one that you're going through now if you feel ready to do that. And I think it helps to step back and think about yourself as a character in a story. And that gives you a little distance and a little self-awareness and a little bit of creativity in terms of how you want to orient thinking about how this character might have grown and changed through what they've been through. If you think about yourself as a character in a story, how did you defeat the villain? How did you slay the dragon? How was there a turning point or turning points where your thinking shifted and you were able to see things in a different way. What happened around that? Why did that happen? Who was there? What were the conditions that created the ability to change and think about things differently? What did you bring back? What did you bring back to the village as your life lesson? Has that become your why now in what you do? Maybe it hasn't and maybe you want it to. This is a great way to self-reflect if you're thinking, if you've been changed by an experience like this helping you to think about next steps about what could be next for you in your journey. Another way to think about this is, what's the moral of the story? If you were telling this story to somebody who was younger than you, what would you want them to think about? Is there something you could have wished that they had? Or is there someone you wish that they had had? Is there a way in which there was something you could have told them ahead of time to make their journey less painful? What could you have done differently? I think these are all questions you can ask yourself. And they could really yield very interesting answers. A lot of grist for the mill in there. It's great. (laughs) Essentially, what I'm hearing you suggest, Melissa, is that these are kind of like journaling prompts. Mm -hmm. These are just simply questions to investigate. And it feels to me like that when you start to investigate any of these, answer any of those questions, 
map out the journey, do any of that, that probably some other questions are going to arise. Other things are going to pop up for you that you kind of go, huh, I didn't realize that was in there. Mm -hmm. This would be a really good thing to investigate. Just getting started is probably the part. Absolutely. And the willingness to do it. Yeah. Yeah. The willingness to be uncomfortable. Which is so uncomfortable. (laughs) But that's human. And we all have that. I want to tie this into... I, so I really appreciate the, you know, the, the concept. And I really think the importance of giving yourself some space. I really like the idea of observing your experience as a character in a story, because mm-hmm. then it's a little less personal, which is many times problematic for some of us. Right? Exactly. That when we think about the relationship of that process to how we take care of ourselves, what's the intersect there? Mm. Giving yourself time, giving yourself flexibility, trying to not let shame overcome your ability to be courageous, being flexible, being open to a different perspective. Like you said, having a perspective of yourself as a character just takes us a little bit out of our ego and maybe gives us a little more compassion for ourselves, tying that back into having compassion for ourselves, letting this process of post-traumatic growth unfold over time and not related to it a false or controlling time frame that we have in our head. Like, I will be fixed and better and healthy by September of 2024. I mean, that would be amazing if that's how it worked. But allowing for the process to unfold and giving yourself curiosity and grace for that to unfold in the ways that it needs to. And that's ultimate in self-care, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. If you can find some compassion and grace, because I think that's what opens up the possibility for us to be able to actually help ourselves. And along the lines of thinking about writing, how would you talk about this process or how would you tell a younger person about this? It's helpful to have compassion if you can think about yourself in your younger years and hold space for your inner child. That sometimes I think that helps with compassion is if you think about younger versions of yourself and just providing those versions with compassion, sometimes it's easier to do that than to work with what we have going on right now. We're generally in the weeds about, right? Exactly. (laughs) It's not always clear until after the seismic event. As we're kind of winding down a little bit here, is there anything that we missed that you want to make sure that our listeners know? I would just say we covered a lot of ground. The importance of mentors and helpers and social support is just so important. My post-traumatic growth interest came out of my doctoral research with post-traumatic growth and survivors of intimate partner violence. And one of the most interesting findings there was that depending on the type of social support that people received, the outcomes could be really good or really bad. If you are going through this process and you're seeking out new possibilities and a religious experience and you have a really bad experience at church, that can hinder your healing. That can make it harder for you to trust that you can get better, that can increase your distress, that can make you feel more alone. Or if you go into an experience where you, let's say, join a church and it's life-changing and you feel that support and you feel that unconditional positive regard and love, it can just sort of buoy you to the next level. I think social support and the way we receive social support is extremely important. That's that whole idea of 
looking for the helpers. Exactly. As, as Mr. Rogers always said. Yes. And Joseph Campbell yeah, talked about yeah. that too. There's always helpers yeah. and mentors in the hero's right. journey that help you along the way and that give you little, little prizes or little rewards that, that help you figure out the next puzzle. I think sometimes, and I can't speak for anybody else, of course, but I think sometimes that one of the biggest lessons I had to learn was to actually look for that. Mm-hmm. Look for the helpers. Look I think that's a Fred Rogers thing, too. I think that is. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. true, though. We have to look for them. And sometimes we have to be, again, in that openness. We have to be open that sometimes they'll come in or arrive in different packages or ways than we might have expected. And that we can receive support from people in ways that maybe we never would have realized would have been important for us. Just the acknowledgement of that. Exactly. 